before we get into word, this week that we had something happen in our community that I don't think got a whole lot of attention um, that I picked up anyway. Perhaps it was out there and some of you saw it. But this past Thursday night, <clears throat> there was a Pinsbury School Board meeting. How many of you were there? Yeah, see, only a couple of us. Because school board meetings are the kind of thing that you don't enjoy going to. In, in our culture, um, we're moving directions and toward things that are becoming increasingly more difficult for us as the church to navigate. Because we have navigated these types of things in a very condemning kind of negative manner. We've lost our voice in some regards because of that. At the same time, some of the things that are confronting us as a church still require us to stand firm on what we believe Scripture teaches us. And so in light of that, we come in conflict with our culture and with the direction of our culture and with where the Word of God brings us. That happens all the time in business, you know, just regular business stuff, ethical, like, you know, business stuff. But it is also coming more and more in the face at the level of academia, in our colleges, in our high schools, all the way down into our our elementary schools. This past Thursday night, Pinsbury School Board had a discussion about the nature of opening up their bathrooms to the gender question. I am not going to condemn anyone who is questioning or working through their gender. I am not going to say that they are bad. I'm not going to say that they're going to burn and go to hell because of that. Any one of us in this room who are outside of God's grace are going to do that. That confusion about gender does not make them eternally destined for punishment. But it does go in the face of scriptural mandates. Each and every one of us are called to know when it is appropriate, and how it is appropriate for us to stand in that gap. Several years ago, here in Newtown, Township, here in Newtown Borough, when they passed their anti-discrimination ordinance, which is uh, a, an LGBT ordinance type of thing, um, myself and one other person went and spoke. I had John Moraney, a big, tall army guy in the back of the room, to protect me. Thank you, John. I've always been grateful to see you in the back of that room that night. And my wife. That speaking, and I do this every Sunday morning with 200 people, that night with 60 people was the most difficult time I've ever spoken. Well, this week, we had two of our people who went before the Pensbury School District and spoke there in regards to the bathroom policy that they were passing. John did. John Livingston. There you are, John. That's John. What grade are you in, John? Tenth grade. Tenth grade. John went and spoke. And then Judy Wolfram, my mom of Pensbury people. She's raised a flock to go through Pensbury School District. She went and spoke. Was it easy to do? Not really. No? Were you a little nervous? I was a lot yeah. Did, yeah. Yeah. John, were you nervous? A little bit? Yeah? It was pretty hard to do that, wasn't it? Yeah. Because... Um, In these issues, we typically go in as the minority and the sole voice in opposition. I bring that up because all of our school districts are going to face this question. Each of us have to think through how we are going to respond. And I'm imploring you, Crossing, 
to not respond in such a way that, that what you walk away with when they've listened to you speak is that you're another hater. Now, they're going to call you that regardless of what you say because you've been labeled. But don't let it be true. Don't let it be true that you walked in and said some of these people are bad or wrong. Don't let it be true that you walked in and said that God's going to turn and burn. Don't let it be true that you walked out of there and people said, oh, definitely a Westboro Baptist person. No, let it be true that as of us, as a people here at Crossing, that when we go and speak in those places, we speak the love of Christ and the love of the person in the middle of trying to also speak the truth. It is an almost impossible balance. But let it be said of us as a church that we spoke love, that we spoke truth, and we spoke it well. Because you're going in and doing hard stuff. But we have to go in and do it anyway. The Pinsbury question is not resolved yet, I understand. The video is not up yet. If you want to catch it, it's not posted just, or it wasn't on Friday. It might be now. If you want to catch it, it's on their website. It's on your TVs. But be praying about Pinsbury. They're in the midst of it. Uh, Bob, has Neshamini done the apostle yet? Yeah, and I don't think Can- Council Rock has yet either. Has, has anyone, Morrisville, I don't know. Bristol, I don't know. Ten- I don't know. Central Bucks has, yeah, up there. Yes. Yep. And what happened was really amazing to me because I thought we were going to go in and say what we were going to say and they were just going to not say anything or not address us at all. Well, that's what happened to me, yeah, so I understand that. What ended up happening was 30 to 45 minutes of discussion back and forth between the board members and questions and things that they hadn't really thought of. And later when we talked to Russ, he said, we were praying that they would be confused. <laughs> and they were confused. And, and it was fabulous. It was a fabulous evidence of God's yeah. answer to prayer for me. And so in that regard, it's a great encouragement for us to not think that it's a done deal. That these decisions have been made and all that. So that's great. Prayer, the power of prayer. Really, really good. Thanks, Judy. Thanks, John. We'll be praying for you guys as you probably will be doing follow-up meetings like that and all. And if we can be praying for you as you do that, that'd be great. All right? God bless. Good. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 6. Now, we learn a lot of stuff when we just look at things, don't we? You can look out the window right now and you see trees with no leaves on them and you can say, it's obviously winter here. You can look at at pictures and you can just realize that there are certain things true when you look at it, right? You, You can deduce just certain things. And so I have a few photographs I want us just to look at. This is not rocket science. This is not difficult. It's just kind of an observation exercise, all right? So, for instance, this very first one, what are you going to deduce about that room when you look at it? It's a girl's room. Thank you very much. What else? Our two rooms. Yep, two girls. What else? They like pink. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And they like nature because of the tree. Okay, good. What else? The colors, did you notice the colors? They're creative, are they not? I mean, not everyone has rigged up a pulley system in their child's bedroom for them to have a swing in it, right? This is a creative family here, right? And they, like, the stripes, you know, like all of us old people, we'd get seasick as we laid in bed and looked at that, but you're not children. So then, how about this one here? What's that? 
What do you deduce from that picture? Camper, yeah. It's an old Shasta trailer camper kind of thing, right? And given that, what year would you put it in, perhaps, when it was manufactured and all? Older than everyone on that side of the room, exactly. (laughs) And And also, you just know, these people like to travel. Because you don't take one of these and park them in your driveway and think, this is a great place to get away. Wait a minute. Some parents might think that's a great place to get away. <laughs> and that could be an idea. What about this one? Can you see it all right? It's a little dark. Who do you think lived in that room? Actually, it's slave quarters from a plantation. Yeah. You can see what, there's, there's nothing fancy there. It is bare minimum. You can see that the people who lived there didn't have much, didn't expect to have much, and it served its purpose to sleep. And then what about this room, this house here? What, t- what does that house tell you? It tells you that these people don't have many friends in the neighborhood. <laughs> that these owners are independent thinkers, um, they're free thinkers, they're creative, and they're not trying to sell that house this week. <laughs> or ever. Each of these pictures tell a story, limited in some cases and not so much in others. But we can look at things and we deduce things from it. But see, Scripture is the same way. We can look at things and we immediately know something about the passage, but when we dig a little bit deeper, we get a great deal more out of the passage. And today, in our passage, in Genesis 6, 9, we're going to be reading our passage. We're going to read to verse 22. No, you know what? I'm going to start Genesis 6, 1. I want to start there because the whole passage is important. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they married um, any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with men forever, for he was mortal and his days would be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and, they, and also afterward. If you want to know about that and you, were, and you weren't here before, just go find the podcast. We att- attempted to address that a couple weeks ago. And also afterwards, when the sons of God were, went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil after all time, all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created, from the face of the earth. Men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air, for I am grieved that I've made them. But Noah, anytime scripture says but, you know, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with the Lord, with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and all was, and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you're going to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long. 450 feet. This room right here, just to give you a sense, because some of you ask these kind of questions, and I understand that. This room here is 182 feet. 450 feet is about a football field and a half long. 75 feet wide. This room here is 55 feet wide and 45 feet high. That's the height. I don't know how tall that is, but it's the height of a four-story building. Make a roof for it and finish the arc to within 18 inches of the top. Put a handle on the side of the arc and make lower, middle, and upper decks. 
I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth and destroy the life under the heavens and, and destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, and you and your sons and your wife and your wife's sons and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you. Note that, will come to you. Isn't that interesting? To be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for yourselves and for them. And Noah did just as the Lord God commanded him. Noah did just as the Lord God commanded him. You remember last week we talked about a little bit as we were doing our installation service, our, our commissioning service for Steve, that I talked about the way that history and culture warp things. They change meanings. You know, there are words that my mom's generation or my generation even, they were not words you said in public, whereas the generation after us says them all the time. Meanings have changed. In this case, in Genesis 6, in the story of Noah and the flood, history culture, and our enemy, the devil, have warped this story. And over the course of time, they have changed its original meaning ever so slowly to take away its meaning or to give it a new meaning. And in this case, what God did with Noah can be summarized in this picture. See, that is what culture and the church too often have allowed the story of Noah to become. Cute, cuddly, purple elephants. And everyone is having a grand time. The, al- the, you know, the alligator is having a party. The birds are chirping along. And there's a, a, a rainbow back there. It's a delightful little children's story. And yet when you look at the passage, what stands out to you at least three times in verses 9 through 22, but if you looked at the beginning of the passage, what stands out is violence and corruption and destroy the earth. That is not a happy purple elephant episode in world history. It is more definitely a dark moment. What began in the garden as man's choice to be like God and to want autonomy has gone unchecked to the degree that God can no longer stand it. God told man to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, but they did so with the brokenness of their inner life and it spilled out into their outer life and so they filled the earth not only with their descendants, but also with their brokenness and their sin. And the outworking of that was, as this text says, violence and corruption. Corruption is a very strong word in the text. It's often translated as destroy. Man was originally tasked to do was to care for creation. And instead, what the text tells us is he has destroyed the creation. He had corrupted and destroyed it. What began as perfect was now suffering the full expression of what it meant for the caretakers to only care for themselves and to cast all creation into a tailspin until it is crashing in on Noah's day. When we look at pictures, remember we were talking about, when we looked at pictures, we said with that picture, we learned this about the owner, we learned this about the context of it somewhat. When we look at this text, we learn a few things about mankind. We already know some. We already know that, he is, that his sin and his rebellion is now in full bloom. It is in vivid color. There are no shadows of how evil the heart of man can be from our text. 
There's no question left about how far they will go. Later on in Psalm 14, the passage that many of us know, in Psalm 14, the passage that many of us know, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God, and they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Verse that many know, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Earlier in our chapter, we read it in verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. He was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved his heart. Man's heart was evil, and God's heart was grieved. To speak to that a little bit, really quickly, that 323, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, here in Psalms 14 where it says, all are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds, you need to understand something that I would venture to say, as I often say, I know many of you in this room, and I know your stories. And for the most part, I don't think there's many abominable deed-doers in this room. But I do believe that every single one of us in this room, either at one time or currently, are still corrupt, who do not seek God and have fallen short of the glory of God. When that, what that means, I just want to define that because some of us might wonder, well, I'm not seeking God's glory. Let me just tell you, that's good because you cannot attain it. Because what we're talking about here is measures. We're talking about how good can you be or how glorious can you be or how much like God can we become. The thing is this, is that we cannot become like God on our own strength. There's nothing in this body, there's nothing in this mind, there's no skill set I have, no strength that I have. There's nothing at all that anyone in this room has, even though some of you are incredibly talented and I admire you, but none of you can attain the standard of righteousness that God has set forth as the mark. If you're running a race and you say that the finish line is out there and it is God's glory, you have to finish that race, cross that line, then you're as glorious as God, you've met his mark, you're righteous. None of us are going to finish that race. It is physically impossible for anyone to have the same standard of righteousness as God. It just can't happen. And what happens is, is that we look at our righteousness Because I would venture to say most people in here in this room are good little G people. If I were to say, let me a buck for a coffee, I'd get $30, maybe $40 on a good day. But see, we look at our goodness from our standard. You know, we've seen the illustration before. We've taken the telescope and we've turned it around. And when you look at the telescope the right way, it magnifies something out there and makes something that's far away really big. When you turn it around, it makes things really small, right? We've turned around and said the telescope and put it on ourselves and said, look at me, I am great. And from our perspective, we probably are doing fine. But if you look at us from God's perspective, we fall incredibly short of that mark. We are not nearly as good as God. In any way possible, you cannot say that we're as good as God. You can say you're nice people. That's okay. A lot of church people are nice people, but they're not, they're not saved, and they don't know Jesus. A lot of unchurched people are really nice people, and they don't know Jesus either. This passage is just speaking to the fact that everyone in this room was born corrupt, 
was without Christ, was apart from Christ, and had fallen short of the standard of what it means to be godly. Hang on to that thought. We'll be coming back to it. If you've ever seen advertisements that promote the purity of a product as being 99.9% pure, well, in this case, that's how corrupt mankind was in this day and time. Mankind was 99.9% corrupt, and that 1% was one man. Our text says everyone was corrupt but Noah. Think about that. In our day and time right now, we have 7 billion plus people. Imagine that if only one person on the face of the earth right now was found to be righteous in God's eyes. Just one. Hard to fathom. So what we learn about man from our text is the total depravity and corruption that he brought upon himself. So for instance, with this picture, we have a hint of what it was. But we are more vividly able to see what it's become. Mankind in Noah's day had been glorious. I mean, mankind in Noah's day had fallen from a place where in the garden they were glorious in an indescribable, unimaginable kind of way. And they had fallen to a place where that glory was so marred and so corrupted and so destroyed that God said, we need to finish this. We need to close off this chapter. And just like this old house that you can imagine what at one time looked like, maybe, but not now. We can only really see what it's become, not what it was. From the very beginning, God had declared hope and salvation and a solution to sin. Genesis 3.15, he spoke to Satan and he spoke to the woman. He said, your seed and your seed. And he talked about them. These two, your seeds will be running in a constant conflict from now on. For all of creation, for all of time, until I end time as you know it. In Revelation, a book you haven't heard about yet, but I'm going to write it later with a guy named John. That book, I'm going to tell you how all this is going to end. But between now and then, there's a running feud between your seed and her seed. And at the end of that is going to come hope. At the end of that is going to come redemption. At the end of that will come salvation. And here was Noah's father who believed that promise still. So that when he had this son, he believed that promise so much. And he had such great hope in God's promise that he named his son Noah, which has, it's related to the word rest or comfort. 5.9 is where that is. But this one, he says, will give us rest from our work, from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. If you go back to Genesis 3.17, God says there, God cursed the land and made man's toil painful. And here is Noah's father that says that this, perhaps this is the one who will give us rest from the curse on the land and will give us rest from man's painful toil. Perhaps this is the one. We find that one man, as described in verse 9, is righteous, blameless, and walking with God. I couldn't, couldn't really find an image that I felt like would be appropriate or would be good in the context of my house theme. Couldn't really find a house that could convey the idea of the isolation of the singular being the one who is righteous in the mix of billions. But I did find one image that I thought conveyed 
that loneliness of a single solitary stand. Many of us will remember that image. One billion Chinese, but this one stood up to the tanks. One billion, but that one stood up to the tanks. One man found righteous, walking with God, blameless before the Lord. From our text, by looking at this picture of what we read about God, what do we learn from him? You know, when I, when I have read this text, I've gone in it, which we all do, with our presuppositions, with what we think it's going to say. And we read into it things that are not always there. And in my mind, I've always read this passage with the prevailing thing. Actually, I have to take that back. I knew that this passage was about judgment, but I did not grasp the full intent of it until one year we went out to see Sight and Sound. How many of you have seen Noah at Sight and Sound? Yeah, a few of you. At Noah at Sight and Sound, they do not, when they do the flood, they do not have rainbows and bright colors and purple elephants and everything come up. The prevailing thing in that image and in that scene of the play, the production, is the screaming of helpless, hopeless, perishing people as they try and get in to the boat to be saved, but are closed out. It was in that scene that all of a sudden, for the first time, the sense of judgment and the sense of punishment really sunk in. And so I think that ever since then, I've especially just wrote this whole passage off. This passage is about God's judgment. But the passage didn't begin that way. The passage begins with a deep grief. That's what it says. Two or three times it talks about grief in the passage. This word for grief here is a deep sorrow. When we look at the picture of God in the text, we see a loving father with a compassionate heart. And our sins have caused him great sorrow. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That the first thing we read about is not necessarily how he merely lashes out to judgment, but how he speaks about sorrow and compassion and grief. Psalms 8 says, What is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? This Hebrew word for grief, nacham, is a deep, unfulfilled longing, a deep pain, bitter anguish. Tim Keller says that God bound his heart up with ours. And he didn't have to, but he did. This great love that God has for us is seemingly impossible to understand. He could have done it differently, but he loved his creation so much that he kept it. After it was corrupted, after it was cracked, after it didn't function the way it was supposed to, after it had kind of written itself out of the job description to care for the garden, after all that, after it had said to God, it looked him in the face and says, I will be like you, just like Satan said it, I'm here saying it too. I want to be without any kind of authority over me. I want to be autonomous. And so the creator still loved the creation. He could have done it differently. He could have started over. He could have torn it up. And he could have made creation that wanted him. He could have created creatures who obeyed him. 
who loved him. He could have made Stepford children, a whole world of them, who said nothing but nice and polite things, and yes, I do, and no, I don't, and did all that. But he didn't. He chose to love the rebellious and the spiteful. He chose to love you and me. Hosea 11, that, this passage in Hosea is perhaps some of my, my most favorite section of Scripture. Here is God talking to his child, Israel, and speaking to him about how Israel has gone and played the horror with everyone around them. And he says, but I love you. He says, when you were in Egypt, I weaned you. I took care of you. I fed you. I comforted you. I loved you. And I brought you out of Egypt. And he says, how could I ever forsake you? It is stunning to think about that. He says, how can I give you up? My heart is turned over in me. All my passions are kindled in me, he says in chapter 11, verse 8. This is not a God who is vengeful and hateful and condemning and punishing and who is waiting on you to mess up so he can beat you, which he has portrayed in culture and by the enemy. This is a God who says, ah, 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 I, my heart hurts for you. If you're a parent in this room, you know what I'm about to talk about. When this one was just a newborn, just days out of the hospital, I can distinctly remember holding him in his, in, in his room and thinking, you will grow up and break my heart. Not because I thought he'd be a bad kid. He's a good kid. Four days out of the week. He's a good kid. Not because of that, but because like, to watch your children suffer is painful. To watch your children struggle is hard. And then there are times when you see them make decisions that you know are going to be hurtful. And you have to watch it. We have a creator father who is like that with us who could have written us off and disposed of us, but he embraced us and says, I know you will cause me pain, but I still love you. And I have good, good things for you. That is what our God is like. But as being a good father, he is. He also is one who understands the role of punishment and and suffering. Hosea is so clear on this issue. God clearly states his love for his people, but he is no less clear that their sin deserves punishment. And this is where the the cuddly pink elephants fade away, and there is no warm fuzzy in this story at at this place. Because sin demands punishment. Sin demands reconciling it. I've used it before so many times, but the parking fee has to be paid. There's a penalty for breaking the law. There's a penalty for breaking God's law. And you cannot get around that unless someone pays that penalty for you. And so here we are. Millions, billions of people perished in the flood. They received the judgment due them for the wickedness and the sin. But the same waters that exercised punishment on those people also delivered salvation to you. Because those same waters that punished those millions or billions 
took that ark and raised it up and preserved the woman's seed that would one day give birth to the Messiah, that would one day die in your place, and that in that death paid your penalty for sin. The waters that punished preserved as well. And we've talked about that in this series, that God is always able to couple punishment with promise every time in a way that we can't understand, in a way that we can't fathom. He takes punishment and he couples it with promise equally. And that's what he did here. There's no getting around the equal parts of God's compassion, his judgment, and his mercy in this story. They are all there. And God's promise in the garden has continued to extend through the, persever- through the preservation of this one man. The seed of the woman has been preserved through the faithfulness of one of her descendants. And every time God is about to ex- exercise judgment, he offers mercy in the context of that. So think about Sodom. I will destroy this city for its wickedness, but one man is drawn out and because there was one righteous. Think about Jericho. One person drawn out because they were faithful. Throughout history, God has preserved his promise through the seed of the woman so that today you might hear the good news that Jesus loves you and that he died for you. And he longs to see each and every one of us accept his forgiveness as our own so we might live in a relationship with him. The story of Noah is no less important to you today, or it is important to you today, even though it is centuries old. Because the same God who offered an opportunity for people to repent and people to believe in that salvation, to understand that there was a payment coming. That same God who loved them completely loves you the same way today. If you're here and you've never really understood that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a sinless life and died a wrongful death and then rose from the dead, all of that for you. For you. So that he could pay the penalty for your sin so that you wouldn't have to pay it for yourself. So that you could come into a saving relationship by believing that penalty is your own. If you're not here today, I pray that you grab that idea and you talk to God about it and just tell him, ask him. I, I just double dog dare you to go before God and say, is this true? And challenge him to prove himself right. Because he will. And you, and it will make an eternity a difference for you if you do that. Let's pray.